0: Hello, welcome back. And I'm um, today. I'm talking to uh, Karen Gregory, who is a lecturer in digital sociology at the University of Edinburgh. Um, so, hi, Karen.
1: Hi, Christopher. Thanks for having me.
0: I know. Thanks for talking to me. Um, I've been looking forward to talking to you uh, for a while. Um, so, Karen is a digital sociologist. Uh, that's that's in her title, uh, but she's specifically interested in, um, I believe, digital labour, gender and technology, and and. Uh, Feminist kind of understandings of of those kind of practices of of digital production and and, and reproduction platform societies uh, Algorithms Uh, would that be about right?
1: Yeah, I think that's a a pretty good uh, Mix of what I'm interested in. I would say that primarily the interest here has come through new forms of work and technology new forms of uh, labor and specifically looking at platform economies and and the gig economy
0: Yeah, exactly. So um, what What would you say has driven your interest in those things? Um, Have you, uh, maybe on a personal level if you like, or on an academic level, how how have you come to these things?
1: Well, I was a student at City University of New York, and I have been teaching in a program that was called the Centre for Worker Education. So labor and labor studies have always been part and parcel of my graduate work. And in graduate school, I took up ethnography and knew that I wanted to keep my focus on labor. And it really was just by hanging out with workers uh, in New York City and watching the ways in which their lives were going digital, uh, especially in the wake of the financial crash, looking at how people were putting themselves back to work after uh, long-term, stable employment had dried up. So I always say to people that I didn't plan on becoming a digital sociologist, but that, and, and still is my interest, is, is looking at people's uh, day-to-day lives and looking at their work lives and understanding the ways in which those lives themselves are sort of leading us to the digital, whether that's to the internet or to looking at the use of mobile uh, mobile technologies, um, even looking now at wearable technologies as employment employers and. Uh, offices start to think about new ways to monitor their employees. So, you know, I think that the focus for me has always been on people, which it makes it very interesting to be a digital sociologist in a world that wants to, um, especially academic world, that wants to always talk about data science. Um, so, again, I think the interest there is for me is people's lives and, and the ethnographic method and the ways in which we can look at how digital technologies are uh, shaping and reconfiguring what it means to work or what it means not to work Um, and also what it means for these technologies to become real companions in our lives. Um, I think I see digital technology as both a very kind of, um, very critical of it, (laughs) very critical of the labor end of it, but I also know that we live in these technologies, that we have intimate lives and relationships, and we put ourselves back to work and we find resilience and community in and through um, through these new digital networks and through digital technology.
0: Yeah, I think that, that's for me. That's one thing that's really fascinating um, about this in general, and the way that you've looked at it. It's not a. It's not a straightforward. It's certainly not a straightforwardly negative or positive scenario. Um, and I think Deborah Lupton's used um, Donna Haraway's work to talk about uh, digital technologies or digital data. I can't remember which as a it- companion species.
1: Yeah, yeah, data, lively data. I really like that idea. Um, and I love, you know, working with the notion of assemblages and thinking about the ways in which data, um, we live with it, we live through it. It is it is us in many ways, but it's, um, I would say, data is in excess of us. It's teaching us new ways to think about ourselves, new ways to think about our bodies, particularly. Um, I had a great, there was a great conversation the other day with a cyber researcher who said, what is the body what is your body now? If I can drive down a street and I can just listen for all of the heart monitors that have been, you know, that people have within them, where is your body in that new in that data that I'm collecting? And I, and it's questions like that that I think mm. really excite, make digital sociology an exciting time. Um, at the same time, I think, and I was mentioning this before, that I see digital sociology, at least in a U.S. context, as a bit of an intervention in some of our enthusiasm about <laughs> these technologies, and you know, continually arguing that what is happening um, is a question of politics it's a question of who's building these technologies where the data is going so so as lovely as some of these ideas can be and as exciting as they can be I think we make a mistake if we don't put them right next to a kind of political economy that helps us to understand why these technologies are being created by whom and for whom and what their effects will be.
0: Yeah absolutely we'll get onto that in in a second but uh, do you think that that point about the the difference between the the American and the the British context, D- do you think there's more of that kind of optimism or utopianism about digital technologies um, in in the in the kind of the US context?
1: You know, it's I obviously don't want to generalize. No, um, sure. only been in the UK for two years, and I am in Edinburgh, so it's I think maybe a bit of a skewed sample there. But I think in the US indus, industry is much more prevalent. And I Mm -hmm. think there's an entrepreneurialism in the U S that has kind of crept into every social institution so that critic, so that technology has entered into the university and entered into the way that we think about technology from a very, uh, ed tech, enthusiastic go, go, go kind of mentality that these are new and exciting ways to live and work and that they're going to uh, bring democracy. They're going to bring access. They're going to bring equality and, because it's already difficult enough in the U.S. to have honest conversations about race and class and gender, I think there is a bit of an enthusiasm that c- smears over a critical approach. Um, that's not to say that there isn't really critical work happening in the U.S., and I think this is actually a quite, um, you know, with a new Trump presidency and uh, kind of burgeoning civil rights movement occurring in the U.S., I think that this is on many people's minds. So I don't mean to say there isn't critical work happening there and, and critical activist work happening there. Yeah. Um, I think because I'm in Edinburgh, what I sense here is that there's a bit more of a, a, a research focus. So let's take a slower, more objective approach to understanding these socio-technical systems, which is... In and of it, I mean, it's a perfectly wonderful approach to take, but I think the the kind of political context might be missing a little bit. The sense of urgency um, in the UK is not there about studying really the the ramifications. I think. Um, it's not to say there isn't enthusiasm here I think it is just often tempered with a kind of um, reasoned <laughs> if that's the right word a slower a more objective approach to trying to figure out what's actually really going on especially at Edinburgh there's an STS, STS is a strong discipline here and it really I think that that approach has sort of settled across different disciplines um, I don't know if that fully answers your question. Or if I'm even right, this is really coming from my own experience from two years. But
0: <laughs> No, no, that's no, that's interesting. Yeah, that, I mean, obviously, yeah, that's, that's your, your, your perspective. We don't um, take that as a, a conclusive uh, assessment, but that, that sounds about right to me. And I think, yeah, I, I think that there's, um, there's a certain degree of kind of uh, skepticism, um, perhaps about, or, or maybe less enthusiasm in that kind of entrepreneurial way. Um, mm-hmm. In the context that I've observed here, at least in, in kind of universities, and, and maybe there's even a bit more of a kind of a general kind of skepticism in the, in the population about about the digital um, or kind of an old-fashioned old um, mm. uh, suspicion, perhaps. Um, but and of course, but of course, obviously, a lot of the uh, the things that you, you you've analysed have perhaps originated uh, in the United States, and certainly one of the things you've uh, you've analysed in some detail is is the, the sharing economy, uh, as yeah. it's sometimes called, uh, which, as we know, uh, something people will probably be familiar with. Mostly we're talking about things like Airbnb, uh, Uber, etc. Sharing is, is a kind of a loaded word in that context, really, um, uh, I think. But um, you've talked about about the spread of these these uh, approaches, um, but you, you have been quite critical of them and suggested they're actually quite an exploitative Um, arrangement of labor. Um, So in what ways would you see them as exploitative?
1: Well, I think we can see the exploitation when we put the sharing economy in any kind of historical perspective. I mean, I think what happens in those sharing narratives is you end up centering the individual as the narrative here of success, that anyone can be an entrepreneur, they can put themselves back to work by clicking on a, a, a platform, you know, or learning to share, as you just said, learning to share their, their resources, their assets, their home, their car, their time. Um, and I think we, at least in the U.S., especially, we, we tend to see that those personal solutions um, are are the end of the story. But when you start to look at the larger uh, structural issues around work and labor in the U.S., the stagnation of wages, the limited role of, of unionized work and worker leverage, um, and workers as a political um Block. I mean, this has really been interesting in the U.S. to watch how the the right has taken up the worker as this new, you know, sort of white male worker as a new face of the Republican Party. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's almost mind-boggling in a lot of ways. But um, yeah, I think it's it's about shifting that focus again. It's about bringing that kind of sociological imagination back to the conversation around work. That that you know, because someone can put themselves back to work flexibly, which again, workers generally claim they, they want flexible work arrangements. And it's been a kind of conversation, especially through feminist critiques of work, that nine to five work is um, prohibitive, it's difficult, it's, yeah. it's gendered, it, it, you know the people want flexibility. Um, but even when we sort of celebrate that some of these things are what individual people want, we can be um, obscuring the larger sort of patterns. And collectively, I think when you have um, a destabilized and very weak labor force, you are, you're looking at a different type of politics. Um, you're looking at something where, I mean, I do think that the, the the right is something we should all be focusing on, even though it doesn't sound particularly digital at the moment. <laughs> um, but looking at the rise of a kind of politics that can exploit worker anxiety and it can exploit people's real real material precarity. And so that there are long-term political consequences to not having a kind of um, organized, stable, and, you um, substantive work, work as an institution that is substantive for people. Um, I was just writing a review of Tressie's book, Lower Ed, and I think she and I both very much agree that what is happening in, in the U.S. particularly, and maybe troublingly in the U.K. as well, is that you're really severing the relationship between work and wage stability. And then you're severing the relationship between education, work, and wage stability. And I don't think any of us are particularly prepared for what that future looks like.
0: No absolutely it yeah it, it could be quite bleak, but I think your focus on the political uh, and those kind of political um uh, wings right and left and, and etc, and the focus on labor is is really important and uh, you can see how that they are very connected you, you mentioned about that idea that that figure of the white male uh, worker mm-hmm. retaining it as the, the this repu- uh, symbol of republicanism. Um, in the US, and we've seen fairly similar things here in Britain, or certainly in England, anyway. Um, and um, some people have, have written very well about the the relationship between that that, that rise of the right mm-hmm. in in another kind of a digital cu- cultural context. People like Alice uh, Marwick and and um, yeah. and, and how the kind of um, drawn on those kinds of men's rights um, uh, discourses in the development of um kind of political uh, discourses uh, often on sites like 4chan and this kind of thing um and the development of i think i can't if it's if it's alice marwick's term or, or if she just used it the, the, the this notion of the manosphere
1: um, mm.
0: online and um how that that has um intersected with um the kind of political maneuverings of particularly yeah. the, the, the trump campaign uh, and to me, exactly seems to seems to feed into those those ideas that you're talking about. So I think yeah. that, for me, that is that is extremely important.
1: Yeah, I think digital technologies have also been very good at um, positioning themselves as tools of the individual, yeah. of the, of the you know the entrepreneurial individual, but also the sort of self actualized individual. The um, Tressie in a talk that she gave at Harvard was referring to ed tech and she calls them roaming autodidacts that the sort of MOOC platforms and all of this, you know, self-directed learning, it takes up a very specific individual as its audience. And of course that individual is the kind of, you know, self, the well-educated, highly mobile, relatively well-off male individual who can afford these technologies, who can, is self-directed in all kinds of uh, uh, different spheres. And I think we do... ourselves a great disservice when we when we prioritize that social figure um, and then expect it to be a universalizing experience for most people Um, and it does it does seem to have you know that culture that manosphere notion is now we're sort of seeing the the effects of it all throughout the internet (laughs) um and people really wondering you know what did we build in some ways here and is this can this really be a new civic sphere so
0: yeah but one of the things that I think you've uh, suggested could be a productive way forward is the notion of platform cooperatives, mm. uh, platform co-ops, um, which in particular has been, um, it's uh, Trubor Schultz, I think, yep. who's developed who's a lot of the work around this. And So what is it? Uh, what is the, the, the potential that you see it, in these kinds of uh, platform
1: co-ops? Well, I think in line with what I'm saying about centering a certain figure, um, what I would like to see is, is us as educators, actually, bring back a labor studies uh, curriculum that helps people understand how individuals <laughs> have organized and organized differently across time and different places and different spaces. And that has an o- this entrepreneurial discourse can be historicized. And I think, you know, we we're talking a little earlier about student anxiety, um, that we're telling people that there's only one way forward. It's you against the world and you must put yourself back to work and you must pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Again, this is not a particularly new discourse. It's been around, especially in the U.S. since the beginning of the country. Um, but we really can temper that notion with some history and I think with labor history. So what the politi- with the platform co-op movement is doing is trying to bring that, that, that labor history of cooperative organizing uh, to a digital economy. I don't think that it will solve all problems. Cooperatives are are relatively limited in what they can do. I mean, there are still businesses that must operate in a capitalist economy. But what they do is I think they temper that notion that everyone is on their own. And they temper that notion that there's no other way possibly to move forward or possibly to organize ourselves. And so Trevor certainly has really uh, been the the, the lead on all of this and he's in New York. Uh, They're having their next conference in November and he's been bringing together scholars activists, uh, workers, and other co- other people from other non-digital cooperatives so that people can really learn and share and and reimagine what economic and working life can look like. Um, this is now an international movement that is moving across the UK as well as Europe. Uh, there's a lot of interest in Germany. And I think, you know, this is sort of an ongoing question. To me, what I end up always bring to those platform cooperative conversations is the notion that we are higher education must play a role in that. Um, when you look at cooperatives like Mondragon in Spain, uh, technology and the actual ability to organize into a cooperative are kind of two, two legs of the t- table. But education is the third leg of the table. And I think we do ourselves at the moment a disservice when we sever um, thinking about labor curriculums and labor histories when we teach anything that has to do with the digital. So I was trying to bring in this educational component and you know something that's been on my mind for a long time is is we're teaching kids to code and program and in many ways we're stressing them out about their abilities to code and program Mm -hmm. but we are also teaching them to be entrepreneurs when we do that and I think we need to start tempering the social figure that is attached to those very skills and tempering the social the notion that somehow if you can learn to code and you can learn to program and if you have any digital skills that this will translate into lucrative work. I think we have to start thinking beyond um, that notion that somehow you're going to go off and start it, you know, strike it rich in a startup. Um, So does that answer your...
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, exactly the way you talk about it is when it's being taught in in that way that you just described... um, it, it more reminds me of, it's, it's almost like a reality TV version of, of what the labor market is like. You know, it, it, if you just believe enough and you work hard enough, you can be, you know, you can be a pop star or you can be um, Mark Zuckerberg or, or something like this, which is, um, of course, not true. And all those precarities around the labor market that you described uh, are, are still there. Uh, yeah. as, as, I mean, it, the, arguably, they've been pioneered by the digital economy. Um, rather than that being uh, in any sense a fix for them.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. We've been talking here at Edinburgh about relationships between the creative economy and digital labour, and I think you hit the nail on the head there. It's that there's been this discourse now for 20 years about turning inward and finding your passion project and finding yourself and Mm. tapping into that creativity and tapping into your true interests. And if you can do that, ideally while you're still in college... (laughs) And can turn those those interests into marketable skills. Somehow, that's our social insurance program. Yeah. And in the U.S., what we're seeing, and especially around Tressie's book, uh, Lower Ed, is that that market for selling education is starting to run dry at the edges. Um, you know, we still are starting to we still see lots of people going to college, and we still do see a relationship between a college degree and increased wages. But as I said before, we're starting we're, the severing of of education from wage stability <laughs> is really something that needs much more attention in a long term sort of you know what does that really look like in twenty years time when people have been working in these precarious flexible arrangements, um, and I, th- I think that it's. It's a, it's, been a, it's a narrative that we have to sort of counter. We have to tell different stories. We have to show different um, forms of organization. Again, this is why I think labor history is so provocative. When I taught in, I was teaching in Queens College in New York, you know, students don't really even know what a union is. They don't understand the, the sort of histories of the workday. They don't understand the relationship of technology to the ways in which we work. Um, they don't think about surveillance as something that happens in workplaces they don't think about rights. <laughs> I had some students at one point who could not tell me the difference between an aristocracy and a democracy, and I don't i don't mean to belittle the student in any way, shape, or form, but that we sort of assume students understand the political economies through which they have grown up. And as sociologists, we know that things have been changing very quickly over the last 30, 40 years, and we're continually def- almost... It seems like we always find ourselves a bit surprised. Oh, Facebook's not a good actor. What's happening there? You know, oh, yeah, those people yeah. wanted our data. Oh, look at that. The government's now Apple. <laughs> you know, something something keeps surprising us, even though if we could look at a longer trajectory, we would see that this has been boiling for many, many years and that we are building the conditions which allow these corporations to have this much power, economic power and political power, that we are specifically ushering in policies that put workers at a disadvantage or maybe even put work out of work, right? And there's a whole mm-hmm. new conversation here about post work and should we be arguing for work? Um, that's a different topic. But
0: yeah, absolutely. And I think that, that um you, you, you kind of get at that very nicely and actually maybe the the, the actually the, the gendered aspect of this brings that together. Um Really clearly, and uh, I think you wrote uh, you wrote a piece uh, called the, "The Personal Is Public Is Political." Um, sorry, that's not what it's called. That was one of your phrases in it: "The, the person <laughs> Is Public Is Political," and um, uh, 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 kind of getting at that, um, that that classic kind of feminist notion that the public is political. Yeah, but um, the, actually, the uh, the internet and digital uh, culture and digital economies um, bring a, a, a new kind of light onto this. Um, and um, I think you, you've got a particularly nuanced. View of the potential of the internet um, for kind of uh, gender politics, and particularly in relation to to labour and kind of reproduction, these kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Because I think uh, you've been quite positive about the, the potential of the internet for sort of feminist consciousness raising uh, to some extent through kind of blogs, podcasts, and, uh, and, and other things. Um, but also there are some uh, some kind of problems in this as well. And um, yes. so, uh, would you like to say anything about? Um, about those potentials you see in the internet for uh, for like uh, the, the kind of feminist project.
1: Sure. I mean, I think you hit you you hit the nail on the head there. There, of course, these new networks and new technologies that can put people together across time and space are um, still have tremendous potential to give rise to new communities. I mean, I for all of the problems that I have with Twitter. I really have been loath to give it up because it's one of the most diverse and interesting mm-hmm. spaces that exists, particularly as an academic. Twitter, Academic Twitter is by nature more diverse than any brick and mortar university and that's invaluable to me. Um, so, so all of that sort of you know early enthusiasm of the internet still finds a home in I think a lot of our hearts that we can use this to create new networks, we can use this to create new communities, um, share different ideas, meet new people. I mean, not that any of this even has to stay virtual, right? Yeah. Uh, we, we meet our friends, our lovers, our boyfriends, our husbands online. Um, and this has real power and agency. I think the book to read, though, <laughs> really sure. is Kylie Jarrett's The Digital Housewife. I think she's done a great service um, because she's really centralized these arguments. And what does it mean when we, we are doing this sort of work of the social but we know that that is not going to be considered labor, right, with a capital L. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is emotional work, that's social work, that's the work of developing and maintaining relationships, of, of taking care of one another, and it's the work of ushering in the social. And I think that that's what the feminist lens offers to this conversation um, that we are actually building something together when we, um, you know click on each other's profiles and we sort of, we we click onto Facebook and look at how our friend is doing, or, you know, we share information across um, a platform that that is a form of labor that traditionally has not been recognized and that it has been exploited. And that's the problem (laughs) Um, that labor gets taken for granted. It gets relied on. And it is, I think the, what the feminist project there is to show actually the, the, the social effects of that exploitation. Of course, now we're into a, horrible morass of what the solutions to that, uh, exploitation are. Is that more formal labor protections? Is that encouraging more women to enter into a formal labor market? Is that, you know, this is, this is sort of getting into the whole work post work debate. Um, and I'm not sure I have a real solution to that issue. I tend to ride the, ride the fence between, okay, the world of work is over (laughs) or no, we actually need many more worker protections. Um, but yeah, I think, I think that, what has been celebrated in the digital economy has many historical precedents, and that's the other piece of this digital sociology to me, is putting some of this in a broader context and, and comparing it. You know, an Uber driver is not necessarily a new social figure who's suddenly been invented. We've yeah. had so. Show- and drivers, delivery riders are delivery people, um, you know, Airbnb has a long history of, of the working class taking in boarders, and I think we can start to sort of, again, temper some of the enthusiasm around this with some history, but we can also temper the idea that what we're doing in all these places is not, um, is not labor, that it is a, it, that it is valuable, it produces value, um, and who does it produce that value for? What are the consequences of producing, what are the consequences of that work and producing value you can't access? And I think it also opens up, if we can historicize this some of it, a bit, it opens up questions of new organizations. Why are we working for Facebook, right? Why do we work for Twitter? Um, could there be some kind of cooperative that we belong to or we are partial owners of these new internet platforms? Um, I think Nathan Schneider, who works with Trevor, has been running a kind of campaign to to cooperatize Twitter, but I'm not quite sure as far as far how, how far he's gotten yet.
0: <laughs> right. I need to look into that. that. sounds fascinating. Yeah, I think he's up against some powerful forces. <laughs>
1: I think at the moment, I think that now that it's a, it's a Trump platform, probably it's, it's... Our best bet might be Mastodon, is what I think. They just haven't hit the tipping point yet, and we just haven't kind of seen the exodus from Twitter Uh, yeah yeah.
0: yeah. I mean Twitter's a kind of a funny one anyway because it's never quite grown to the extent that I think it was expected to for a while Um, and it of course it is very popular but it's never kind of really really reached anything like the kind of the Facebook or even um, I would guess I don't know I would guess even Instagram probably has more um, (laughs) more users than Twitter but it has a very kind of focused quite dedicated uh, and very specific kind of um, group I think um so I, I i don't know if um maybe twitter users are, p- are particularly hooked into into the platform or maybe some others are, 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 are maybe have a potentially more transient group i'm not mm-hmm. sure
1: You know, I think it's interesting, though, the the question of Twitter, and especially academic Twitter. Mm -hmm. I mean, I do see that space as a kind of extension of my work life, Yeah. especially now that we have a master's program and that I'm using it more to sort of define what that program is and to advertise the program to students. I also know that my colleagues follow me there um, and that I'm uh, responsible, really, in many ways, personally responsible for maintaining a kind of professional, curated Tone and and you know that there's a there's a certain amount of surveillance that happens in that space, and I I find it to be a kind of um, I find the trolling and the harassment and the the sort of right wing Trumpification of that platform to be a kind of workplace hazard. I don't know if that sounds too extreme, but I think you know I think a lot of academics particularly feel trapped in that space. We haven't we haven't figured out how to. Um, uh, Take a bit more of control over the this means of production, and I and I think, you know, generally, we just we think that these things are are, are platforms you click on. I don't know while you're waiting for the bus. <laughs> There's something you do between other meetings, or you know, it's just it's just a tweet, or it's just the digital. Um, But these actually, these things have real ramifications for our work-life balance, for our potentially professional careers. I mean, I've been watching, keeping an eye on on the U.S. and have an article coming out about anger in academic Twitter um, that looks at the ramifications of when your own personal anger, you know, you're encouraged, uh, as Dina Boyd and Alice have said, to tweet passionately. But what happens when that passionate tweeting kind of meets a backlash Mm. and even a concerted backlash? Because it might not even be people who are causing the backlash but bots who have have kind of put you in their scope and the next thing you know your university doesn't have a very good policy for this and you've been you know either suspended or there's some kind of you know new investigation so i I think um there's there's a lot more work that we could be doing particularly around twitter and and given that academics have really flocked to that platform to think a bit more about how we can better protect ourselves there and also if we really want to be in that space at all. I think it's a it's, it's a question that's still up for grabs.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, again, I think that, uh, as you rightly point out, the, the gendered aspect of this is uh, is really important. And I hadn't quite thought about it in the way that you've articulated, but um, that, that kind of social uh, engagement and kind of relationship and network building has traditionally been a, a, a gendered or a kind of a feminized activity. And it still is effectively being um um sidelined or minimized um to an extent as you say it's kind of just the digital it's just it's just okay. a tweet it's just this kind of thing um and i think i've experienced that in terms of um uh, where i work when we've had discussions around around doing um uh, digital stuff it's um not deliberately but seen as something a, a <laughs> bit a bit kind of extra or a, a little bit of a, a little bit of a laugh. Um, rather than something that is a, a, a serious thing um but of course part of the reason why people like to engage with it is because it isn't 100 percent serious or um um or or, or sort of business-like so it, it's 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 a strange uh, space i think
1: it is, yeah it's just, i mean i think that's you're exactly right it's a i love bon stewart's work on twitter on academic twitter I mean, it's a space where people can meet each other across hierarchies and you can be you can be it in different roles in the university and actually participate in Twitter in a way that you couldn't do maybe in, in the brick and mortar university. Um, but you're completely right that I think it's not just Twitter or um, social media that gets dismissed in the university. It's anything digital that somehow a website just builds itself <laughs> yeah, that, yeah. Um, you know, that it people are just on demand and they can fix your computer or that, you know, teaching online, this is my, you know, everyone's favorite bugbear that somehow teaching, online is um effortless that it just happens in some cloud of ether and it frees up all this time i mean anyone who's ever taught online knows that it's three times as labor intensive Mm -hmm. and deeply debilitating so (laughs) Um, i think it's it's again this notion that the digital has come with the words of in the cloud of immateriality Mm -hmm. of um the virtual or the cyber it's something you can't touch that somehow this isn't a real material uh, thing which we know is wrong, right? Um, and that that this doesn't require time and energy and and human work and labor. And even when we bring that perspective back to it, you say, okay, here's how much time it's going to take me to build this website for you, and here's the three people that I need to do it. Um, somehow that doesn't often register on administrative um, agendas because, no. as we know, and I think this is where my work has gone more generally. These technologies have been used over and over and in different contexts to weaken workers' leverage and worker agency and to to really leave us in a position where we have not found the vocabulary yet to say, no, we're not going to do this. <laughs> um, particularly in the UK around things like impact agenda, you know, there's something that gets people. They want to be out there. It, it taps into some of our desires. Um, it might be more work, but it's the thing you have to do. And I, I think that real bind that people are finding themselves in you know it's it's not limited to academics but it's sort of the, the question of our time how do we move forward in this murkier space where things are work and not work how do we kind of build the world that we want or the social institutions that we need when we are now in a space where we have to do things work 24 hours a day check your email all the time make sure you're you know publicly facing uh continually engaging in impacts and things like that but at the same time, you are losing actual economic or political um, capacity. You're losing actual agency to, to to affect policy. You're losing agency to affect the trajectory of these larger systems.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, what well, I'd like to um, just uh, end on like uh, have a uh, just a few minutes to talk about now. It's something uh, a slight change of tack, but um, on the, um, I suppose a more theoretical or methodological aspect uh, um, of your work in which you've um, particularly where you've discussed the impact of algorithms and adaptive yeah. algorithms um, and how they're kind of related to um, how we understand and how we can um, create uh, demographic kind of understandings of, of populations um, yeah. and how you, you stated that um, algorithms and particularly adaptive algorithms pushes towards a post-probabilistic situation and um, and uh, the algorithmic structures and things like this are having an impact on how we uh, how we uh, how we think about representation mm.
1: uh,
0: and you've suggested I think you suggested the pushes towards uh, a, a non representational um, situation um, and so if I'm writing in what you're kind of getting at here um, this is related to um, how algorithmic structures are kind of almost kind of working behind the scenes um, mm-hmm. to define who we are. So if we, maybe if we can think about um, the kind of uh, categories which we get put into by uh, and classifications by uh, de- dependent on our, our kind of um, our interactions online, on Facebook and Twitter mm-hmm. and these kinds of things. And they're actually sort of shaping the world for us almost before we start to comprehend it. Um Am I, am, I, am I getting it at, at your kind of point right there, think, or roughly?
1: No, I think the, the trick here, the simple way to say this is, you know, as much as I've been talking about human labor and new forms of work and, and, and sort of work that is not considered work, updating your Facebook profile or um, swiping your, your card at the Tesco and the data that's collected there, as much as I'm interested in human workers and the future of labor, I think the digital economy asks us to question who or what is working, who or what is laboring, and really, what you're talking about is the question of data. As our lives have been opened up to new terrains of data collection, um, that almost every click, you every every bit of your life on the internet, every cell phone call, every swipe of your of your loyalty card, all of that is producing a digital trace. Um, And of course, I, I think we say, you know, kind of building on Nigel Thrift's notion of an expressive an expressive terrain that we're being made to um, give up <laughs> bits of ourselves into this into these into these data structures and that every variable right from whether you like ice cream to whether you are married or um, to whether you own a dog all of that can be data data data-fied as well as monetized And I think that we're starting to see that the data itself is laboring the data is the value. Um, it's very common now to hear people talk about data being the new oil, I think that's a really creepy and really interesting uh, metaphor that's out there, but so that the data itself—that what we produce just in and through our daily lives, just by being ourselves, by, by following—you know—again, following our passions—to <laughs> the internet—we um, produce a tremendous amount of, of data and, and and a weird speculative value, right? So that data does not just translate into a dollar or a pound, but it's a speculative data because it's entering into this world of uh, of, of big data, which needs. to to be parsed by algorithmic infrastructures, and that the algorithms are not searching necessarily for the information, um, you know, in that kind of cybernetic, they're searching for patterns, and these are dynamic patterns. The best and I think most accessible way to think about what is happening in terms of algorithmic um infrastructures is actually through Randy Martin's work on derivatives and his piece called The Social Logic of the Derivative. Yep. And explaining the ways in which, for example, a house. Is no longer a home in the way that a commodity, you know, a house is no longer simply a house, but it can be broken up into multiple rooms and every bit of those rooms can be broken up and valued. And that what derivatives are doing, or derivative logic is doing, is cracking open all the commodities, cracking open all the things we thought were stable, even our bodies, right? It's just us, it's just me, not to a digital economy. You are an endless, uh, at the moment, kind of speculative terrain of, of new. Forms of data that you could produce, and also new combinations of data that you can produce. And here again, I think this is why that language around the individual can be so problematic and so obscuring, because we still see ourselves as the as the narrative, as the hero of this narrative, as the figure of this economy, when in many ways the economy, this data economy, is extracting information from us and 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 is living far beyond what we are doing as individuals. Um, I think that the quotes that you're taking are from a piece called The Datalogical Turn. Yeah. Which was written, um, was co-written with three other people, Patricia Clough, Ben Haber, and Josh Scannell. And I you know, I think it's a kind of dense and difficult paper, in part because four people were trying to think together on the page. But I really think what we were trying to do was show that this is that this is about something that requires a non human sensibility. And that can be hard for sociologists to think because we love to see the world as being kind of human construct and reality as a human construct. But we were kind of making the argument that we have to crack open that discourse, that we have to start looking at different objects and material. We have to think about data in a slightly different way. Um, these things, and you know it's not just not just us in the data logical turn. Um, a lot of people in finance right now and accountants are struggling with the notion of how do we represent this? If if this dynamic pricing market algorithmic infrastructure is really leading the show, how do we ever figure how do we ever figure out how to show it back to ourselves? Um, And I think particularly around, um, you know, dynamic pricing is another great example that that kind of brings this down to earth for people. That the future of the grocery store, for example, is not going to be I walk in and I buy an apple for 80 cents and so does my neighbor. Uh. But all of this information will start to produce personalized profiles and dynamic pricing geared to you. And while maybe some of that sounds like, ooh, convenience, maybe today I pay 60 cents for the apple what that does in the long term for what it means for access to space, for, for rights that you can agitate around, um, for the kinds of protections, food protection, i mean, just thinking about the future of food security to me there. Um, all of this, this kind of dynamic and derivative logic is, is Mm -hmm. underwriting a new sociality, or at least that's the argument we were making in that paper, or it's beginning to underwrite a new sociality. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the, if we stay focused on the human too much there we're going to miss what's actually happening and miss the new social relationships that are being engendered and miss a new kind of economic um, world that is being built
0: yeah absolutely there is um there's been quite a lot of talk recently a, a, about um exactly those things you're, you're describing um, and actually you're describing a few years ago really uh, they're only becoming more person, i think and um so i think uh, is walmart has walmart done a deal with um, Google, I think, and and obviously Amazon have bought um, yep. Whole Foods yeah. in the US, and they're, they're implementing exactly um, those kinds of things that you're just describing. And who knows what else in terms of what kind of data they'll be able to collect as you're uh, you know as, as you're traveling around the store uh, stores. I'm sure that they'll have uh, <laughs> an app that you can be using in the store, which it will probably be tracking precisely where you're walking or looking and, and these kinds of things.
1: Yeah, um, that's fascinating. Faci- I mean, it is deeply fascinating, right? That the amount of time you spend looking at the box of macaroni and cheese is somehow important to someone somewhere, or you know, yeah. did you blink your eyes when you purchased something? It's a. It, I think it's a really fascinating time to be doing social science. These are all kinds of new, strange terrains. I think the the, the issue again is that sadly, this is not divorced from politics and what these grocery store <laughs> moments remind me of is that the, you know, it sounds like a leap in logic, but it reminds me of the the militarization of the border. It reminds me of, you know, this kind of play, play to pay, uh, pay to play sociality, where you're allowed to move one inch here, but not here. You can buy the macaroni and cheese today, but not tomorrow. And I wonder what really, you know, the ramifications of that are for things like democracy. <laughs> <laughs> it's, you know, it's a lot to say in one sentence, but I, but I think we can see in these kind of banal examples uh, an infrastructure of control that has no real reason to temper itself. And so what looks like convenience, convenience to us one day will also look like the very terrains of immobility in a couple years. And if not already, for some people, I mean, I think we're starting to see that, right? Some people can't come to the U.S., some people can't come to the U.K. We are refusing, in many ways, to accept that, um, you know, refugees are a real crisis. So, sorry, I could go on and on about that one. Sorry, it's a
0: <laughs> no, no, absolutely, yeah, I, I think, I think, think that, that that's right. It is, it is a fascinating time. It's, yeah. it's, it's fascinating, yeah. although terrifying at the same time.
1: Well, it's like, I guess the short way of saying it is that we have a refugee crisis on on the on the table. <laughs> And yet, we don't see ourselves as victims of migration in that way, and we don't see ourselves as victims of of exclusion. We think we're getting bought into this great new system that's going to, you know, Siri's going to take care of everything in our house. To me, the two things are just intricately woven. I, I think Soski, Assassin stuff, on, uh, work on exclusions should be on everybody's syllabus at the moment. I mean, we are we are part and parcel of that population making is what I'm trying, you know, try have been trying to say, and I think, I, I yeah. I'm not quite sure where it all leads me. I feel like I'm always supposed to have some sort of solution to this problem, but I don't. I just think it's a scary time.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. No, I'm, I'm not asking for a solution. Um, yeah, we'll give you a few years for that. But uh...
1: <laughs> I don't know that there is one. I don't know. I mean, that's my, yeah. That's the other thing. I'll just say, if you don't want to record this part, but um, in the U.S., I think there is a bit more um, urgency, and it seems a bit more like, hey, guys, did you realize you were making a big list of everyone? <laughs> hey, guys, did you realize that when you go to the Whole Foods now, you're going to be tracked? And, and that could you know turn into ice coming to your house. I, I think in the U.S. there's a bit more um, just urgency around these issues and, and around state violence and, and you know, racial justice. And in the U.K., when sometimes you say, hey that great new grocery store is sort of like a militarized border and I makes me creep, you know, it scares me. I don't want to go in there. I think people here say, Oh, why? You're being a little hysterical.
0: <laughs> so I think that's true. Yeah. We, we, yeah, that, that is definitely one of the downsides of that kind of uh, British disposition that we tend to not think <laughs> things are too bad. Uh, although actually, you don't we, have to put that into the podcast. <laughs> no, well, I'll take it out if you want. Yeah. It's up to you. Um, but yeah, I think that that's true. And because, um, but i think very recently um, we're starting to see a more mainstream idea emerge that actually things which governments are doing and, and the british government uh, are doing or trying to do is is borderline authoritarian or maybe not borderline and, and it is you know it's it's a it's a kind of an executive power grab uh, that's yep. going on and it, and it is uh, it is worrying yeah uh, but i think there is maybe a bit more of the awareness actually a bit a bit of hysteria might be a good thing um, well, yeah.
1: I mean, I think what's happening, I, I've said before, I think we're, we're like ripping off really quickly the, the, the veil of liberal politics around these technologies. Um, and it's, it is a question to ask what, and again, I think it's a question for a digital sociologist to ask, what has made this possible? How have we gotten to the situation? What actors have built these systems? What were their intentions? And now that that veil of liberal politics is a little bit stripped back, although... I do still, I still keep my eye on um, the Mark Zuckerberg run for politics. There, yeah, I, I think Trump could be transitional towards a new liberalism, which is no, not going to be our friend either. Um, but I think you know it's worth putting some of this stuff in historical context and really looking at how and why this was built and who built it, and, and putting some of the human factors back into, um, you know, the enthusiasm of all this tech and really trying to trace out some of the histories. I think those are. Projects for digital sociology students and that the sooner we get a better handle on what what the intentions of all of this technology were and what what maybe blinded us um, in some ways to the downsides, you know, maybe that was Google money actually funding a department uh, or funding or, you know, our Uber money funding a department Um, or were we, you know, just sort of taking for granted that there was going to be this continued push towards a, a increasing liberalization of Western society.
0: Okay, so thanks. Thanks for talking to me so much, Karen. It's been really fascinating and uh, it's been great to hear about some of your uh, work and ideas and um, uh, it'd be great to talk to you again sometime.
1: Sure, thanks for talking to me. Thank you, bye. Bye.